Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Politics has never been stranger or more online, which is why the politics team at Wired is making a new show, Wired Politics Lab. It's all about how to navigate the endless stream of news and information and what to look out for. Each week on the show, we'll dig into far-right platforms, AI chatbots, influencer campaigns, and so much more. Wired Politics Lab launches Thursday, April 11th. Follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. We will pursue new rules of global trade and economic growth that strive to level the playing field so that it's not artificially tipped in favor of any one country at the expense of others. A key part of President Trump's campaign was pledging to restore prosperity and to ease the anxiety for those left behind by globalization. Space exploration and technology are a waste of time and money, and everybody knows it. Why are we spending billions of dollars to send things into outer space when we have so many problems down here on the ground? Mr. Putin downplaying it as a special military operation. President Biden called it a premeditated attack and a brutal assault. Whatever you call it, a deadly war has broken out in Europe and it's having a ripple effect across the globe. Energy giant Shell says it's going to stop buying Russian oil and natural gas. What could go right? I'm Zachary Carabell, the founder of The Progress Network, and I am here as always with Emma Varvalukas, the executive director of The Progress Network, and we are having an ongoing series of conversations, mostly with members of the Progress Network, but in general with people who are grappling with the idea, not just of what could go right, but of how we can make sure that things do in fact go right, which means solving real problems in real time and also solving theoretical and future problems in real time. And our conversation today with Greg Easterbrook is wide ranging over both where we are, where we've been, and where we're going, and how you balance the problems of the present with the potential problems of the future, and how you solve for those problems in the present, as well as an awareness of how much we have already solved. You know, One thing we are trying to do over and over again is find the right way of looking at progress, meaning how to articulate what has changed, what has animated human beings, what has led to the world we're in for the better relative to what things were in the past in a way that can be heard, in a way that recognizes the problems in the present, recognizes the challenge, recognizes the unknown of the future, and grapples with those in a realistic way while also honoring both progress and the, the ability of human beings to solve for those problems. So. We're gonna have that conversation today and focus a bit more on the Navy and space and some of the statistical realities. But Emma, tell us a bit about Greg Easterbrook. I feel sometimes when I when I when I throw this over to you, tell us a bit about that we're like at the beginning of some sort of game show, you know, and tell us about <laughs> our contestants today. But nonetheless, tell us a bit about Greg Easterbrook. Okay, our lovely contestant today is Greg Easterbrook, and he's the author of 12 books. 
pound him 12, which means he's written more books than you, unless you're Zachary, I believe, who's written 13. That's right. Neck and neck. Neck and neck. And today we're going to be talking about his most recent book, which is The Blue Age, How the U.S. Navy Created Global Prosperity and Why We're in Danger of Losing It. In addition to being a very prolific book writer, he was a staff writer, national correspondent, or contributing editor at The Atlantic for nearly 40 years. And he's written for a bevy of other publications. It's more like which publication has he not written for, including New Yorker, Wired, Harvard Business Review, The New Republic, and The New York Times. He's a fellow in economics and government studies at the Brookings Institution, and he was elected to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences in 2017. So let's have a conversation with Greg. Let's do it. So Greg Easterbrook, it's a pleasure to be having this conversation with you. It is also a rare, rare moment where there are two people for a conversation who have written a book with exactly the same title. We both wrote a book called The Leading Indicators, yours being fiction, mine being nonfiction, the absence of fiction. You came first, so I shamelessly stole your title with the blessing of my publisher, who was indifferent to that fact. Yours, I think, did a bit better because it was probably a better book, certainly more entertaining. But I just want to say welcome to the the Leading Indicators Club of Two. I think that that's just something we should acknowledge on the get-go. And everyone out there can go onto Amazon and, and buy both copies of the book and thereby have two copies of the leading indicators from two different people. If we're going to be a, a club, Zach, we should have a mysterious initiation process that no one but you and I understand. Yeah, we'll, we'll get to the secret handshake and the kind of the hidden. There'll be several, uh, what do they call them in, in, in those books uh, that, that you, you're supposed to follow the trail? Hidden little things. I, I can't remember now. We'll, we'll um, some people, writers call them breadcrumbs. Breadcrumbs. Well, throughout the conversation, there's actually going to be a secret sub conversation. And if I can find them, can I join the club with you guys? You, you can. Without Emma, a book, that'll be okay. great. Absolutely, we'll give you two free books. Anybody who follows the breadcrumbs. Yes. Well, Emma, one of us has to nominate you, and the other one has to second your nomination. So you have two possible people who could do that. Okay. Fingers crossed. <laughs> you also were early on in writing something, I think in 2003, right, about the paradox of progress. Yes, Progress Paradox was the title of that book. This idea of why are people feeling so bad when things are so good? Have you looked back over the past 18, 19 years and and noticed how much more severe that trend has become? Well, I, I've actually, Zach and Emma, I've, I've written four books specifically on the topic of the improvement of society. And my current book, The Blue Age, is kind of half on that topic. So I guess I could say I've written 4.5 books on that topic. And I told an interviewer a couple of months ago, an interviewer asked me, what would you want your obituary to say? And my response was, do you know something that I don't know? (laughs) But I said, I think my obituary should say that the aspect of my writing that made people angry is that I'm an optimist. In, in, In the current milieu, being optimistic about the condition of the world upsets people. Whereas if you tell them everything's going, everything, whereas we're all doomed and it's all going to hell in a handbasket, people almost sigh with relief because that's what they expect to hear. So starting, my, my, my first big nonfiction book was called A Moment on the Earth, and that was about 1995, and that was about why most environmental trends were going to turn positive. This is 1995, remember? And 
The book proved completely right about that. Didn't cause anybody to become optimistic, though. Um, all environment, and not in every nation, but in most of the world, environmental trends are positive, with the exception of greenhouse gases. That's a huge exception we can talk about. So then, in two thousand and three, I, I published a book called "The Progress Paradox," which is about social science research and our subjective understanding of ourselves and why it is that rising living standards emphatically does not be, make people any higher. We'd, we'd rather people be living at a high material standard and unhappy than living at a low material standard and un unhappy. Obviously, the former is a better outcome, but still it's the outcome that we have. Material standards are high for most people and, and social happiness is, has not improved at all in several generations. The third book in this set was called Sonic Boom. It came out in 2009. Remember that year was the bottom of the Great Recession. And that book predicted that the Great Recession would not be fatal, as everyone was saying then, that the global economy was going to be fine, which is exactly what happened, and that we would be better off because of rising international trade. And rising international trade turned out to be the subject of the Blue Age, which we're going to talk about today. But I skipped in between. In 2018, I published a book called It's Better Than It Looks, which makes an overall argument about the condition of the world, not subjectively like progress paradox, but objectively. What can you show with numbers? And I think with numbers, you show beyond, beyond a shadow of a doubt that almost everyone is better off than almost everyone used to be, and that you can that we can be reasonably confident the future generations will also be better off. And that, that sort of completed my desire to argue out those topics. And now, now I'm on the oceans with the blue age, but that's, it has a lot to do with improvement of society. So it's interesting. You talk about the, the hostility that optimism engenders. I've been fascinated by this for years. I would write columns 10 years ago. You know, you may know it for a while. I wrote this column called the edgy optimist. The idea be, being that optimism doesn't have to be Pollyannish and rose-tinted. It can actually be mm -hmm. somewhat hard-nosed about legitimate problems and issues that we're facing with a, with a bent toward our collective capacity to solve those. But it is absolutely true that when people are feeling highly negative, anxious, concerned about the present and, by extension, the future, optimism as a, hey, look, let's look at where we are, where we've been in, in a greater scheme of things and, and appreciate that can seem like an, uh, a negation of those feelings, right? It can seem like you're saying you're wrong, and not just you're wrong like you're factually wrong, which there, there's a way to do respectfully, but it can feel like you're saying to people you're foolish, right? That your your feelings are misguided, which is never a good thing. Like people do not never respond well to that. It's like it's like the the trope of you know the marital argument where someone says calm down and that's like the worst thing you could possibly say in the moment. So what what do you make of that? I mean is there a way cuz I've struggled with this for years of how do you how do you speak in a way that people can hear? There, there's a talk I've given a few times including at Colorado College a few years ago. That's my alma mater, so I always think of a reason to throw it in. And the talk is titled, Why the Good News Makes People Angry. And it's about that very thing, that telling people good news seems to make them upset, where if you tell them bad news, ah, what a relief. That's what I expected to hear. And 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 there's, there's a logical component to it that you 
suggested, and that, that is when you say, oh, things are getting better, no matter how carefully you phrase it, what people hear is everything is completely fine. And of course, everything is not completely fine. The world is full of serious problems. There are more problems coming. Uh, but people hear that you're saying that everything is fine and that, oh, we should be complacent and stop trying. And that's not at all. I've tried every way that I can think of to word this without engendering that reaction. But I can tell you that the, the reaction that I'm trying to engender is if you look at history and, and, and my book of from 18, it's better than it looks, shows example of example after this. In the past, when there's been some crisis, there's been an optimistic forecast and a pessimistic forecast. In almost every case, the optimistic forecast has been the correct one. So when we look at history, optimists are certainly not every time, but optimists are almost always right. And that's because they believe in the power of reform. If you're an optimist, you're not complacent. You're not denying problems. You think the problems can be fixed. If you're a pessimist, you know, why bother to try? If you if you really believe that global warming is going to destroy the world, per perfectly intelligent and well-informed people will actually say that, just like I said it, global warming is going to destroy the world. If you actually believe that, then, you know, why not give up? Open all the champagne you can find and forget about it. But, but of course, global warming is not going to destroy the world. Optimists like me say, here are the five things we have to do to prevent this from happening. And if we enact reforms, they're going to work. That's the optimistic view. And it's, it's uh, like you have too, Zach. We've fumbled around with ways to say this, and people are programmed to respond in the opposite way, partly because the modern media programs people to be upset and anxious all the time, and, and it's very effective programming. And uh, I'm not sure if there's a perfect way to express the idea, but uh, but, I, but I have on <laughs> many occasions tried to kind of talk audiences through why do you get upset when you hear good news? And it's not complacency. It means we need reforms. We need reforms on global warming, inequality, et cetera. And we should be confident they'll actually work. And that, that's that's how I've tried to express it with, with mixed success at absolute best. This reminds me of a, like a Facebook troll that we have at the Progress Network. You know, me and, and the staff who handle a lot of the Progress Network mm -hmm. social media, sometimes we have articles where we say, you know, this is going to be a slam dunk. There's no way that somebody's going to be able to look at this and say, ugh, you know, find something to pick apart. So recently we posted an article about how NASA is trying to knock asteroids off course so that yeah. we don't go the way of the dinosaurs. Good and idea. our troll was like, so what? You know, and it's it's that kind of you know some of that is just a human nature, but but some of that, like you said, is it might be a uh, a symptom of the the modern media. And I'm wondering if you give people any advice about trying to balance out their media diet or how to you know how to come to the media with that understanding that it's making them anxious and nervous. Well, there's there's, there's a couple of points, Emma, that I would want to make on that. And, and one, we can't do anything about one, one is regardless of evolutionary psychology, regardless who, of who's right or wrong in that academic debate. And as you know, it's probably know it's very heated. There isn't any doubt that we're sociologically, we're descended from the anxious people of the past. The people who are constantly scanning the horizon for predators are the ones who survived and were their descendants. The ones who are comfortable and tried to take it easy something really big came along and ate them and we're not their descendants. So, so we have a natural inclination to view things in a negative way. 
And, and that's not necessarily bad. Thinking negatively is a good way to protect yourself and your friends and, 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 and your family. But when, when you come to trying to think about what, what our policy choices should be, a lot of people feel very negative. World is ending. We've got to restrict that. We've got to denounce that, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, maybe that's right. I can't prove that that's right. I can't, for example. Many people fear the economy will totally collapse. Not that we'll have a bad year, but the economy will collapse and stores will be empty and there'll be no, there'll be no food, there'll be no medicine, et cetera. I think that's incredibly unlikely, but I can't prove that that's unlikely, that, that will never happen. Maybe, you know, maybe it will happen. So I think when you decide to endorse that view, and that's the view that, that the mass media is selling round the clock. Hannah Arendt, I always quote, and I quote her in the Blue Age, warned about this in the 1950s. That, that was just when mass media was becoming practical. And she warned they're going to sell fear, 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 because this is how the elites maintain their power. If people thought, hey, society is pretty good, I can take care of my own community myself, then why would you need billionaires? Why would you need powerful government? Uh, Hannah Arendt warned about all this stuff. So if you decide, you know, I think that global warming really is going to destroy the world. I'm not going to have any descendants. hundred years from now, the world will be lifeless. That's a choice. That's a choice that you make to believe that stuff. Now, if you decide, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to listen to, to Greg and Zach and say things are on the right track and the world is improving and, and Emma's right, we ought to deflect asteroids because the world's going to be around for, for hundreds of thousands of years. People are going to be living on Earth. We've got to protect it. That's a choice. And nobody can prove that we're right either. All of us, we make choices in this. And if you if you make the choice to be upset and depressed all the time, all I can say is, you're giving up the one experience of life that you will ever have. Hey, everybody, I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. We're the hosts of Political Breakdown, a show that pulls back the curtain on the people and forces driving politics in the Golden State from KQED in San Francisco. And now, ahead of the 2024 election, we are bringing you even more. More conversations with the top movers and shakers at the state capitol and in national politics. But the dyslexia was the greatest gift that ever happened to me. Nothing was rote. Nothing was linear. I had to work around things, work differently, see the world differently. And I say that to young people and say, know how important your participation is. And I think it's a time for this generation to put forward new voices. More reporting with analysis. It's been a very good session for organized labor. but Hot labor summer. Hot labor summer. It's turning out to be a nice fall as well. More politics with personality. I've sweat election day my entire life. (laughs) (laughs) We we hear that. (laughs) Political breakdown daily. Every weekday, we'll break down what's happening and why it matters. With news that informs, surprises, and maybe even inspires you. Political Breakdown goes daily starting January 8th. Hey, it's Emma. They say you should learn something new every day. It's good advice, but with so much to do in your daily life, how are you going to make the time to learn and stay curious about our world? Well, with everything everywhere daily, you can easily make that goal an actual reality. Everything Ever a Daily is one of the world's most popular daily education podcasts and a top three history podcast. In about 10 minutes, you can learn something new every day. 
The show covers history, science, geography, mathematics, and technology, as well as biographies from some of the world's most interesting people. Fans of the show are so passionate that you even work to join the Completionist Club, the group of dedicated listeners who have listened to every single one of the show's more than a thousand and counting episodes. All of the episodes are informative, interesting, and best of all, always under 15 minutes. So go ahead, learn something new every single day with Everything Everywhere Daily. Find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. So let's let's uh, shift gears from uh, toward the book, the recent book, The Blue Age, about the Navy and the way in which the U.S. Navy helped create a global peace imperium and why that is now, I guess, in question. The structure of the international economic system and the position of the United States economy within it substantially defines the environment in which the United States Navy must operate. Or put another way, the structure of the world economic system substantially determines how and where naval force must be applied to achieve decisive results. That was author Nicholas Lambert remarking on his piece, What is a Navy for? for the U.S. Naval Institute. So first of all, how did you pivot to that? Or maybe it's not a pivot, it just looks like a pivot because most of us don't live in your head. And like, where, where did that come from as, a, as an outgrowth? Where's the passion? And walk us through just the, the, the highlights. My book from four years ago, is Better Than It Looks, had major chapters on all the things that we thought would happen that aren't happening. And it's always important to keep in mind the things that didn't happen are just as important as the things that did. And one, 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 one of the chapters is about why war was declining rather than getting worse. And it's been clear for 25 years now, you know, that's only 25 years. Maybe that's not long enough to generalize, but frequency, intensity, and casualties of war are all in a long-term period of decline. And there was one page in, in that chapter that said, think about naval warfare. Uh, it, Anybody who's been born since the early 1950s, there hasn't been a major naval battle in your lifetime. There's only been a couple of minor battles all over the world, whereas in all previous centuries, there was constant bloodshed on the water. And the absence of naval war enables the increase in global trade that's helping almost everybody. We can, we, we can talk about what people believe about globalization versus what actually happens. But by far most important, that's reduced poverty in Asia. Bernie Sanders constantly tells us that, global, that globalized trade is a race to the bottom and it destroys jobs. Our disastrous trade policies have cost us millions of good paying jobs, and it is part of the race to the bottom. If it's a race to the bottom, it's the most unsuccessful race in world history. When Bernie Sanders was born, 60% of the world lived in extreme poverty. Today, 10% of the world lives in extreme poverty, and that number continues to decline. The decline of poverty is the great unreported story of our lifetimes, and most of it was caused by globalized trade. So my editor reads this. This is just a page and says, okay, that's your next book. So here, I'm holding it up as authors are supposed to do. Here is my next book. It starts off talking about how the United States Navy achieved the the end of war at sea, which is a, a great achievement that the Navy should get credit for. A lot of people don't like military organizations. I'm skeptical of them. Navy deserves credit for ending war at sea. And that the next part of the book is about what that led to in terms of global economics. And the third part of the book is about how we, we really badly need governance 
of the oceans, which are ungoverned now, and the oceans are three quarters of the world's surface. There's no environmental control. There's no labor protection. There's a lot of things that need to happen on the blue water that are not happening. And the, 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 the final third of that book is about how we would achieve a reasonable form of ocean governance. But that, that, that's how this evolved. My editor looked at me and circled a page and said, here's your next book. And it turned out he was right. So Greg, I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about something that you just touched on, which is the actual effects of globalization and free trade versus the narrative of it, especially in the United States. I mean, right now it's, it seems like both Democrats and Republicans are kind of like half, half on whether or not globalization free trade are a good thing. So I was wondering if you talk a little bit more about that and especially a point that was in your book that the bad feeling about it might have less to do with the availability or scarcity of jobs and more to do with the lack of social mobility and the lack of labor organization in the U.S. I think we should start, Emma, with the, with the latter. People believe that the middle class is losing is shrinking and losing power in the United States. And statistically, that's not true. The buying power of the middle class is the highest it's ever been and, and has improved at roughly the same rate every year since the end of World War II, including the years of globalization. But it is true that class mobility is in decline. Class mobility is a big concern. Class mobility is how we keep our society vibrant. And if we're going to say America is a place where anybody can, can become anything, and then we observe that class mobility is declining, that's a big issue. And it's got to be related to the decline of organized labor. If you look at Western Europe, organized labor is much stronger there. It doesn't lead to higher prices in Western Europe, I'm talking about. But organized labor being strong does not lead to bad inflation. It doesn't lead to higher prices. It doesn't lead to shortages of anything. It does lead to social mobility that we that we've that we're losing in the United States. And I think when I when I look at the American economy, that people say, oh, the middle class is being hollowed out. That's just not true. That's something that politicians say because it sounds good. But they say that the lack of the lack of power for the labor movement has caused social mobility to decline. Yeah, yeah that is true. And that's something to worry about. So that's the second half of uh, of what you were saying. The, the first half is the actual effect of globalization, especially if you look at the last 20 years, which is the, tw the 20 years since China joined the World Trade Organization, which politicians constantly talk about as some kind of calamity. It's a pretty funny looking calamity because living standards have risen almost everywhere in the world. Employment has risen almost everywhere in the world. It is true that if you look in the Ohio Valley, you can find some communities when you look in the western part of Pennsylvania and in parts of Wisconsin, you can find some communities that wish there wasn't globalized trade because specific communities lost specific factories. But overall, employment in the Ohio Valley has risen during the period that China has been in the World Trade Organization. Overall, northern Wisconsin, western Pennsylvania, these communities are better off than they were before globalization began by almost any metric low unemployment, higher wages, higher household income, et cetera. But people believe it's the reverse. That We believe a lot of things that are reverse of the facts. And a key thing that people believe in, in both the United States and Western Europe 
If you look at polling data, pollsters ask, is poverty in the developing world getting lower or getting worse? By an overwhelming margin, people say poverty is getting worse, even though what's actually happened is the reverse of that, uh, that that more than a billion people have been lifted out of poverty in, in a single generation, which is a remarkable achievement. But people believe the opposite. And what you want to believe is a lot more powerful than what's factually true, as we found out with the Trump election, for example. I mean, it's also true that many of those jobs that were lost in the Rust Belt, that term was coined way before China was either approximate presence or approximate threat. That Rust Belt was the 70s and the 80s, you know, 30 years before China, partly because of global trends and the rise of Japan and cheaper steel being available in other parts of the world, partly because the legacy even in the United States has been basically a constant move of factories and labor to areas where it's cheaper. I mean, this Massachusetts and the Northeast was decimated 100 years ago when furniture making and textiles went to South Carolina and North Carolina. I mean, that was an internal migration of jobs, but it certainly wasn't fun if you were if you were in, uh, you know, all those towns that dotted north of, of Boston or central Massachusetts. Zach, I grew up in Buffalo, New York. And if you know the history of Buffalo, New York, and a, a, a great engine of Employment in Buffalo was the Bethlehem Steel Facility in Lackawanna, New York, just south of the city of Buffalo. It closed in 1982, long before the Chinese could possibly have had any effect on it. Actually, before the Japanese could have had any effect on it. It closed because it was using steelmaking equipment that was one century old and just totally out of date. There was no scenario where Bethlehem Steel in Lackawanna was not going to close. And yet, in retrospect, people blamed it on the Chinese. And you still hear New York politicians say the Chinese caused that steel plant to close because people believe it. So I grew up in New York City and my only relationship to Bethlehem Steel and that whole trend was seeing the movie Flashdance, <laughs> where Jennifer Peels made an, an abandoned steel plant suddenly interesting and not a little bit sexy. So other than that, it was all you know distant headlines and, and distant news. I do want to push you on one thing, and I'm, I'm curious also from Emma... You know, if, if, if I guess first, Emma, do you have the same, like when you engage people in conversation about what you're doing, other than eye rolling, do you occasionally get pushback of, oh, give me a break, like things are getting better, or you're trying to point that out, you must be diluted? Not diluted. I do get like, oh, like we're, you know, trying to focus on substantive good news. And usually the response is, there's good news. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, act- actually there is. And when you give people examples, actually they tend to get excited. I don't know if it's just because I'm talking to people who know me and they're not trying to be rude. But for instance, I sent that NASA article to somebody recently and she was like, this is the coolest thing ever. I had no idea. I mean, also it has to do with space and people like space. But no, actually, there seems to be an uptake of like, there's an appetite for this because people feel thirsty for good news. They don't want to live in a world that's constantly having them believe that it's going to end tomorrow because it's exhausting. I think it is exhausting. Yeah. I guess I want to push back one thing, Greg, on your own work. So I'm, I'm curious how you maybe reconcile what looks like attention and may not be for you. You've also been very critical of the resource intensivity for what end of the space race or whatever we're going to call it today. The, the, the move into space, the, we're going to colonize Mars, uh, I don't know what your your current feelings are about Elon Musk and <laughs> SpaceX as the outsourced 
arm of NASA, but then the desire to terraform or land on Mars at some point in the next 10 years. And I think you've been generally critical for decades of the utilization of a lot of money for a little outcome. Neil deGrasse Tyson has talked a lot about this concept and how it relates to space travel. People look at space, it's quite visible expenditure of national funds, and people say, well, why are we spending money up there and we have problems down here and we need social programs? Well, take a look at the budget of the United States of America and you will find that we spend a factor of 50 more on social programs and on education than we do on NASA. So for the people to say, don't spend that up there, spend it on these other programs, well, you're making a one-fiftieth of a difference in that other budget. Do you really think that's going to change the world in that way? That was Neil deGrasse Tyson talking with Gideon Rose for Foreign Affairs magazine. I want to tie that back to the Blue Age, right? Because a lot of what happened in the 19th century was that people got on ships, they headed across oceans whose outcome was unknown and was dangerous and costly and lives and goods and money was lost in the pursuit of we're going to see what the boundaries are of the earth. We're going to explore what's possible, uh, much of which created the foundations of the progress that we're talking about today. So why isn't that same drive extended outward into the solar system with uncertain ends and uncertain outcomes and the waste of a lot of money in the meantime? Why isn't that a similar potential pattern. It's a good point, Zach, and I'll, I'll begin answering it by quoting from my own book, The Blue Age. I describe the urge to explore, and there's a sentence that says, and we're going to, society will benefit from this urge whenever crossing the oceans gives way to crossing the stars. I think it's going to happen. It's just not going to happen in our lifetimes. That On a technical basis, the, the engineering and the technology just isn't there. And even just going to Mars to walk around for a couple of days and, to, and come back, the technology just isn't there. And it's not going to be there during our lifetime. It will come. It's definitely going to come. Human beings will live on Mars someday. Mars may be a highly populous planet someday in the future. And, and someday our descendants will leave the solar system and go somewhere else. But that's I think that's just farther in the future than most people imagine. So that's that's the source of my feelings on that. Greg, going back to the Blue Age, we talked about the trade aspect a little bit, but another part of the premise that you mentioned is that the U.S. Navy is responsible for this long era of peace that we've currently seen. And, and part of the introduction of the book is about how people don't don't realize that we are in this sort of era of peace in terms of the seas. And it's funny because it made me think of a few years ago, I was dating somebody in the Navy and I told my friend, oh, I'm dating someone in the military. And they said to me, oh, wow, I mean, he must have had some really you know hard times in the military because we were in Afghanistan and so on and so forth. I was like, oh, no, no, no. He was in the Navy. Nothing happened. <laughs> so it was funny because implicitly, actually, we do know that there's peace on the seas right now. But explicitly, mm-hmm. like you say in the book, we don't. But this is all kind of to get around to a, a shorter, easier question, which is how did the U.S. Navy accomplish this? Because it's certainly not something that people would come to intuitively. If you think about the last 500 years of great power history, it's been a struggle for control of the seas. All of the great powers, United States, England, Germany, Japan, Spain, Portugal, the Netherlands, they wanted to control the sea. And if you look at it statistically, with a couple of of years, there was more fighting at sea than there was on land. 
It's just that we're not aware of the fighting at sea because the people who were killed, their bodies vanished, the ships sunk. There are no memorials at sea. Even if there were floating memorials at sea, you couldn't go to visit them. We can visit the memorials that are built on land and 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 see the centopaths that seem to appeal to heaven because you, you can you can walk on that land. You, you can't walk on the places where there were naval naval battles. So we're just not so much aware of it. And I, I constantly want to emphasize that naval arms races were central to the beginning of World War I and World War II. Both world wars were preceded by naval arms races. Now, there were other bad things going on too, of course, but if you look at the history of 1914, you're taught in high school that the assassination of the Archduke started World War I. Yeah, but there was a naval arms race five years before, and Germany and England were just itching to fire those big battleship cannons at each other. If you look at before World War II, what do you think the Japanese have been doing for five years before they attacked Pearl Harbor? They've been building a Navy that was designed to destroy our Navy. And they almost succeeded. Fortunately, they didn't. Uh, so naval arms races have been a real bad indicator of recent history, the history of people who are alive today. And there's another naval arms race now starting between the United States, China, and let's not forget, India is also a factor in the new naval arms race. But if you look at the post-war period, when World War II ended, the United States was the wealthiest nation, the most powerful nation, the only nation, all on the ends of the earth, the only great power that was totally secure from a political standpoint. Well, all the other great powers were vulnerable in, in at least some ways and some of them in many ways. And we continued to build our Navy. The other great powers stopped building their Navy. And at some point, and we can argue about when it was, it was probably in the 1980s, we had such an, and I described some of the events that happened in the 80s to make this true. We had such an overwhelming level of, of sea power that the Soviets especially just said, yep, we give up. We're not going to build ships anymore. We can't possibly contest you. And if you, if you looked at history, that 500 years of great power in naval arms races, you would have expected that the United States would use its naval power for conquest, because that's how all previous nations had used naval power. We didn't. We didn't use it to conquer anybody. We used it to make the seas safe for commerce, and suddenly poverty began to decline. Now, we benefit from that. I, mean, I, I benefit, you benefit. Where Everybody who lives in the United States benefits from the decline of global poverty and, and the, the presence of a supply chain, which is wonky right now, but still is continuing to function. We all benefit from it. So it's not like the United States Navy did this entirely for altruistic reasons, but it spent more time and more money and more and more person power protecting other nations than it spent protecting itself. And it's totally unprecedented in human history for a great power to have uh, an, an invincible military force and not use it for conquest. Now, will it always be this way? I don't know. The, the third part of Blue Age is about how we can keep the equilibrium approximately the way it is now. Of course, it's not going to be exactly the same, but I think it's a realistic objective to keep the equilibrium approximately as it is and have the United States Navy certainly in complete charge of the Western Hemisphere. Um, that's a great outcome for the United States. It's a great outcome for South America, for the Navy to run the Western Hemisphere. It's basically, it's a great outcome for everybody. But I think we can also find a peaceful solution to the South China Sea and, and other flashpoints.
The government of Kenya pledged to end gender-based violence by 2026. The Ministry of Health in Uganda is trying to eradicate yellow fever. It's ambitious to make these kinds of pledges, but it is much harder to achieve these lofty goals. Are these leaders really delivering on these promises for women and girls? Tune into a new season of The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women, a podcast from Foreign Policy, as reporters across Africa meet courageous women holding leaders accountable in various sectors, including healthcare, startups, and the government. Listen to Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women wherever you get your podcasts. History doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. That may be a Mark Twain quote, but it's just as true today as when he originally said it. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics is a podcast that compares and contrasts history to the current events of today. Host Bruce Carlson has recently done deep dives on fascinating topics like the fall of the Soviet Union, which sets the stage for today's geopolitics, the man who was in prison and still won a million votes for the presidency, and the mystery behind George Washington's involvement, or lack thereof, in the Bill of Rights. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics offers deep context to all these historic stories, especially those that you may think you know well, and is particularly adept at relating them to current events. So don't miss out. Listen to My History Can Beat Up Your Politics on all platforms. It started early this morning. The Russian assault on Ukraine began with missile attacks on key targets. But across the country, Ukrainians woke to explosions lighting up the dawn sky. We're recording this conversation in February. By the time people are listening to this conversation, it is certainly in the realm of possibility that Russia will have invaded the Ukraine, that NATO will be reacting in some form or another, that that conflict will be potent, right? Present, available, news, major, oh my God. There will be headlines saying, you know, this throws us back to some 1930s moment. And it is possible, as you talk about in the South China Sea, uh, let alone uh, between China and Taiwan, that there will be aggression there at some point, Um, maybe less likely, but certainly in the realm of possibility. What would that do to your general thesis? Would you still say much as what you've said, which is you never said there would never be armed conflict. You just said its prevalence has been, you know, over a long arc decreasing and its lethality and, and longevity as well. And how would you respond to people who would say, oh, yeah, right, war is decreasing, sure. Well, uh, people do say that. You get the impression from the news that war is increasing. And war increasing is just what we all subconsciously assume will happen because it's happened through most of history. But statistically, it's not. And and I give, uh, I, I won't read the statistics from the book, but, but the Stockholm Institute of Peace that tra- tracks these numbers, statistically, prevalence of war, intensity of war, casualties from war, they're all in a 25-year cycle of decline, including if you include secondary casualties that are caused by embargoes and blockades and, and, and so on. Will it stay that way? We're all, this is February of of 2022, we are all worried about the Russians invading Ukraine, or equally, NATO could make some incredible show of force to stop them, and NATO's show of force could trigger some kind of fighting. Now, that would be land war. My book, Blue Age, is about is about the sea, so let's talk about the thing that you just mentioned, Taiwan. A short time ago, I was speaking to a group of U.S. Naval Academy graduates, all of whom are current Navy officers or, or or former Navy officers, and I said to them, "I want to take a I want to take a vote of people who are present. If China prepared to invade Taiwan, and they might, should we put the fleet between China and Taiwan?" And they were unanimous. 
they all said, yes, we do it. And if we did that, it would not only be a terrible fight, but it could also cause the, the global economy to go into a recession or even a depression. Because if we try to restrain Chinese behavior by striking at the Chinese homeland, imagine what the consequences would be for everyone, not just the Chinese. It would be terrible for the Chinese. It would be horrible for us. It would be horrible for the Europeans. And I, I think the Chinese are well enough aware of these things. I mean, we're all, we, we always think about our own vulnerabilities, and America has many vulnerabilities. China has many vulnerabilities. I think the Chinese are basically aware of them. And I think their hope is that they will get Taiwan back at some point through some combination of political pressure and diplomatic pressure. And the Taiwanese people themselves maybe are going to change their mind. I don't think that's going to happen, but I think that's what the Chinese Communist Party leaders are hoping for. I think they realize that if they actually tried to invade Taiwan, it would be a global scale calamity. And I'm, I'm hoping they're into, that they're logical enough to accept that. And, and it's the point you make in the book as well, that any naval conflict, because the world is so intertwined now with trade is going to be a no winner, all loser outcome. Yeah. Yeah. It's either we all win or we all lose in that situation. And do we find that countries, including China, are well enough aware of this? I would like to think so. China's increase in military power has not been used yet. In fact, the Chinese, to the extent they use their military power, using it against their own people, which is about as creepy as you can get. And so they're certainly behaving in in a, in a creepy way, but I think the Chinese are aware of how interdependent their country is. If they if China lost the ability to provide, it's, China's built an amazing physical infrastructure in just the last twenty five years of hospitals, apartment buildings, restaurants, schools. If China lost the ability to keep building it and supplying its own physical infrastructure, the Chinese Communist Party might have a rebellion on their hands, and they don't want that. I hope that they're that they're logical and, and rational about these things. Um, and people, many, 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 many of your listeners may be thinking, "Well, gee, before World War One, weren't there people saying that trade was making war impossible?" People, some people did say that a hundred years ago, but at that time, global trade was four or five percent of the world GDP. Now it's twenty-six percent of the world GDP. Twenty-six percent of the global GDP is roughly the same amount as was lost during the Great Depression. So, if something happens that stops global trade in nineteen fourteen, it caused people, the, the living standards declined. There was starvation in, in Western countries, including Germany. 5% decline in, tra in trade caused starvation in Germany, an advanced country. Imagine if there's a 26% decline in trade today. It'd be awful practically everywhere. And I'm, I'm just hoping the Chinese government and other governments, including ours, are aware of these things. And also, as you mentioned before, I mean, the, the reality of 1914 was... Yes, an interdependence, a trade interdependence between various states of Western and Central and even the Russian Empire, Europe. But there was also a massive arms race. There was mobilization of millions of troops on land. There was a, a, a naval arms race in the North Sea, in the Mediterranean, into the Atlantic. And so you juxtaposed a, a trade interdependency with a, a militaristic tinderbox. Yeah. And while I suppose you could create a minor analogy of that as to what's going on in East Asia. Um, the Japanese are certainly rearming much more aggressively yeah. than most people yeah. realize. They spend a lot of money on their military. They do so rather quietly, and they 
do so under the guise of it's all defensive, non-aggressive weaponry, but it's pretty sophisticated, incredible weaponry nonetheless, uh, the Koreans as well. So I, you could probably create a, a, a mini analogy to that, you know, massive trade interdependence in East Asia between all those countries while simultaneously preparing for some sort of conflict between China and whomever. And I guess we'll see, but there doesn't seem to be the same uh, sort of martial militarism that accompanied 1914. You know, the, the present never scans perfectly to the past anyway. No, it doesn't. So I want to I go back to something and end with this, and I'm curious about Emma's thoughts about this as well, which is to kind of push on the space question, not as a space question, but as a, if the arc of human progress over the past 200 years has been partly an unreasonable belief in our collective capacity to solve intractable problems, why is the drive into space, which you're totally right, is is premature at a technological level and highly wasteful because of that at a present tense level, still, why isn't that part of the same animating spirit of sort of unreasonable, irrational, you know, I think about the role, the kind of cultural icon role that Elon Musk is currently playing. Elon Musk says the first orbital flight of the world's most powerful rocket ever built could happen in a month or two. Musk gave an update on his company's massive Starship rocket just last night. The backdrop, the towering, nearly 400-foot-tall rocket. NASA officials say they have a plan to use it to land astronauts on the moon as early as 2025. But Musk says he has much bigger dreams. He says he wants to deploy a whole fleet of Starships to bring people and equipment to Mars, to put, build a city there. Certainly in some part of our collective consciousness, I have two teenage boys who are kind of entranced by what Musk represents, right? It doesn't mean they want to be him or like him. It's just that kind of unreasonable, screw it, we're gonna, we're, we're literally going to shoot for the stars, however unlikely that is, that that spirit can be incredibly potent in moving progress. I mean, I can speak for myself. I would rather us waste a whole lot of money on an unreasonable venture that has a potential to move that arc of progress and human potential than, you know, spend it on insurance, right? Um, and that's a choice, and it's a choice of resources. And I suppose you could say, well, there's lots of people starving, and there's a lot of social chaos, and we should be utilizing those resources. But I'm not sure resources are quite as finite as that equation would have us suggest. So why isn't it a, why isn't it an inherently good thing, even if it's wasteful and unreasonable, given your own read of progress over time? I, I think it's it's a matter of it's a matter of scale and how many decades you're willing to develop to to devote to this our rockets are still at the rowboat stage if you were magellan for example and you wanted to circle the world which was a crazy risky thing to do and it cost the lives of almost everyone on on magellan's voyage three year voyage around the world if you were willing to do that and you said but you have to do it in a rowboat it wouldn't it just why even try? We're at the rowboat stage with moving in space right now, and I'll, and I'll, and we've we haven't gotten to the wooden sailing ship stage. I think we will get to the wooden sailing ship stage at some point in this century. It's not going to happen in our lifetimes. It may happen in our children's lifetimes. It is definitely going to happen. I have no doubt that it's going to happen. We're just not as close as many people think. And I'll give you an example. Suppose you wanted to. Elon Musk constantly talks about going to Mars, and and so do a, a few other. Jeff Bezos, etc. So suppose you wanted to the, the the Apollo missions had three astronauts. Suppose you wanted to send three astronauts to Mars, have them stay for a month, and come back, 
and do it with the same weight ratios of fuel to supplies to people to number of days traveled. Do it with those same ratios that were used in the most efficient Apollo mission, which was Apollo 17. It was the most efficient of the missions. If you do it that way, you need 4,000 tons when your spaceship leaves low Earth orbit. That's the weight of a modern Navy destroyer. Imagine trying to put a destroyer into orbit around the Earth so that you have enough weight to go to Mars, keep people alive, and bring them back. That's the kind of really basic engineering uh, barrier that needs to be overcome. And I'm not sure how, I think somebody will someday overcome it, but it, it it's we can't overcome it today or even get close to it. Another example of this, the, the really big rocket that Elon Musk is still trying to launch and, and, the space, and NASA is also trying to launch a really big rocket. Uh, Elon Musk's engineers call it the BFR, which stands for big rocket. Um, and it's really big. They haven't launched it yet. Let's suppose they do. To get my 4,000 tons into low Earth orbit would require 120 of these rockets, even if all of them work perfectly. Oh, besides what it would cost, I mean, just it's just crazy impractical with current technology. At some point, there will be technical breakthroughs, and then we can start talking about Mars and even going farther beyond that. But it's really just not as close as, as Elon Musk would like you to think. Zachary, just to deepen uh, the pushback that you anticipated in your question, the matter of why are we throwing all this money at space when there are other tractable problems that we could be spending money on? I understand your point of like resources aren't finite, but also I think this is tied into the general frustration and the narrative that people have right now about billionaires throwing their money at things that Greg is pointing out are not feasible right now. So if they're going to be throwing their money at something like, why can't you throw your money at something that really could lead to material uplift of people now? And they have a lot of power of directing our, you know, attention into certain things. So while someone else could also be throwing money somewhere, somewhere else, that doesn't seem to be happening, right? I think there, though, it's it's there's a there's a, first of all there's a difference between what Bezos is doing and Blue Origin, which is much more in the space tourism and vanity project versus what Musk is doing, where a lot of SpaceX really is um, an outsourced contractor for the for the U.S. government. And meaning it, this, a lot of what SpaceX is doing is what NASA and the government internally would have done 40 years ago, but for various reasons of cost and efficiency is incapable of doing or unable to do. And, and that doesn't change your resource question, but it's less about billionaires doing their playthings, again, Branson and Bezos being more in that camp, than it is about should we collectively be using our resources because a lot of the money for SpaceX is is our tax dollars. It's our not, yeah, yeah. You know, it's not Elon's billions. Well, I, let, Zach, let me say this in defense of NASA. The money that's spent on space science has been very productive. Telescopes and probes are tremendous returns of, of, of human knowledge compared to the money we spend. And you, pro- you probably know that the, the new space telescope has arrived at its yep. position well beyond the moon. When that thing turns on and starts producing data, we're all going to be completely fascinated. because so I think it will upend thousands of years of thinking about what's out there. And that's a cost-efficient use based on the technology we have today. Right. Uh, colonizing Mars is just, it's just, and, just and, and I guess, you know, we're going to, we're going to, I don't know that we're going to agree to disagree, but my point is, is more, it's clear in retrospect, the difference between a rowboat and Magellan, 
But it's also relatively clear that before Magellan, the Vikings got on what were, you know, the semi-equivalent of a rowboat and went to Greenland, that human beings probably tried to do what Magellan did with the rowboat and failed. And it was their failure with the rowboat that led to the next boat that led to the next boat that led to the Blue Age and the modern Navy and those destroyers that were not about to launch into space, as you so aptly point out. And that you cannot... I think it's much more difficult to toggle rationally or reasonably between that drive to create and innovate and the reasonableness behind it. Um, and I think we, you know, we don't we don't find the right formula. And I would be more concerned about um, squelching that formula because I think with it comes a lot of the solutions to all these other absolutely pressing, much more pressing issues. That that animating spirit of we are capable of doing what we thought we were incapable of doing, and we are capable of creating what we thought we could never create to solve problems that we thought were unsolvable. Um, and that's my pay on to that spirit. I hope to have answers for you soon, or at least suggestions, because my next book is about the question of why the pace of scientific and technological breakthroughs has slowed down in the last generation. The pace of breakthroughs used to be a lot faster than it was have we hit some kind of wall? That's a possibility. Or are we doing research wrong? That's another possibility. So I hope to have more on that soon. Well, when you when you have answers for us, please let us know and we will come back and continue the conversation with more answers about the same questions. <laughs> Thanks so much, Emma and Greg, for the conversation and looking forward to those answers. Great. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Greg. So... Emma, you seemed uh, unconvinced by my florid pay-on to progress in the form of why we should waste our money trying to get to Mars. Mm, you know, this is the second time in the conversation I'm going to bring up a Facebook comment. They seem to be stuck in my mind. But for instance, uh, our listeners may or may not know that Mark Cuban launched a online pharmacy in January 2022 that is aimed at first radical transparency around drug prices and uh, be letting Americans buy drugs without the the middleman markup. And somebody commented on our Facebook like, man, this is so much better than billionaires sending like penis rockets to the moon. (laughs) Um, And the, you know, genitalia comment aside, I see what she's saying. You know, it it, it is. It, okay, that's a for-profit business. It's not like he was completely being, you know, doing something for the social good, but that's really going to have a difference to people now. And so I think that the argument that you're making is persuasive in a romantic sense. It's not in a right now everyday people could use this solution. So I think that's where I remain unpersuaded. But if we only spent money at any given time and resources solving for a clear, immediate solution, we wouldn't be doing research and development for the moonshots, for the things that we think are we potentially could do, but we're not clear about. There wouldn't have been a decade, as we also pointed out, and as you pointed out in one of our newsletters, of research behind mRNA vaccines such that at the point in time when it became utterly crucial to quickly develop a vaccine in in the face of the threat of COVID, that work wouldn't have been done, right? Because when those billions were, were being spent initially, they were highly speculative. There was no product. 
there was nothing for which they were solving. They were there were things for which they wished to solve, but there was no way for them to do so. I guess then it's like if you're gonna go with that tech, they they put money into mRNA because they thought, hey, we think it could do X, Y, and Z. But all of the space money, some of it, like you pointed out during the episode, is because we think we can do X, Y, Z. And some of it just seems to be like, let's go to space. And I think it's the the latter spending that is the frustrating bit. Interesting. So I think this is a this is a crucial debate when we think about the ratio of resources that we deploy to solve for problems in the present versus resources we deploy to solve for problems in the future. And you know, that's a mismatch in how we have dealt with climate change. It's a mismatch in how we have dealt with pandemic preparedness, you name it. And I think the, the issue is always that money and resources being spent in real time that do not have a real time application can always be seen as either wasteful or secondary or something that you could put off. It's like deferred maintenance on a bridge, right? It, we've got things we got to do right now. We'll, we'll get to that later. And I'm concerned that if we don't do it now, we won't get to it later. And that there has to be, um, just like companies have to spend money on their own R&D for the next generation, after the next generation, governments have to do the same sponsoring theoretical research that has no commercial application, right? Otherwise, we, we, we have none of the pipeline that has made us so dramatically potent over the past 200 years. That is true. The, the what if is a big what if, and you don't want to shut us off from that. I'm going to keep thinking about it. So we'll leave it. We'll leave it with the question mark. Maybe we'll continue this with our, our next conversations with another set of people. Or we could do a spinoff called What Could Go Right in Space. What Could Go Right in Space. That will be our, <laughs> our, our bonus episodes for our podcast. Anyway, Greg Easterbrook's new book, uh, Blue Age, the rest of his books, all available, all viable all obtainable. Everyone should. They're absolutely worth reading. And please sign up for the Progress Network newsletter, as always, if you haven't already. Thanks, everyone, for listening. If you want to find out more information about the Progress Network and what could go right, please visit our website at theprogressnetwork.org. And if you want something other than gloom and doom when you open your email in the morning, you can also sign up for our weekly newsletter. It's a roundup of progress news from around the world. And that's at theprogressnetwork.org slash newsletter. And please, if you like the show, if you could tell a friend, share an episode, leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, that would help us out a ton. What Could Go Right is hosted by Zachary Carabell and Emma Barber Lucas. The show is produced by Andrew Stephen and edited by Jordan Aaron, executive produced by Jeff Umbro and the Pug Thank you so much for listening.